good evening, everyone, and thank you all very much for coming out on another cold night. <sighs> it's supposed to be 76 on Thursday, so I'm feeling a little more cheerful. But anyway, very much appreciate your coming to see Tom Perry, one of my favorite people. Tom is the winner of the Edgar Award and the Hammett Award, and God knows what else. What else have you won? You have to use you have to use the bike. Um, I don't know. One of my kids won a, a goldfish at the <laughs> fair one time. It was one of those, you know, and it grew to be almost a foot long. I see. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I mean, there, you know. Along the way. I've won more than I deserved, and uh, you know, probably, uh, <laughs> you know, <coughs> let's say. There are probably people out there resenting me because they were the runner-up on whatever it was. You know, so, uh, let's see what I don't know. It's just a lot of uh, nice people have said good things. There's no helpful biography on this that I can crib from, so <laughs> so we're just going to go with that. In any case, Tom and I have been together for gosh, it's over 30 years now, isn't it? Yeah, we were just talking about that. I was uh, today, uh, uh, Joe and I, after we got off the plane and you know we went out to uh, forage for food and I was telling her about how the first time I came here it was it was sort of midsummer and uh, and I had a hard time talking a cab driver into driving me to Scottsdale it was like it sounded like I was wanted him to drive him drive me to New Jersey you know <laughs> and uh, but he did and and he sort of drove me up to this place and uh, it was not the store. It was no, it was the, the old store, right? Yeah, over on store. Main, at the right. Horse's Ass, which yeah. was the location that I... It was so easy to yeah. direct people to it. They'd say, where's the store? I would say, it's at the Horse's Ass, yeah. which it actually was. And I, you know, I got out, out of the car, and it was, you know, a, a balmy 113 or whatever mm -hmm. it is at the temperature of in, in the summer. And uh, I remember there were, there were more people than you expected to come, so... You kind of herded us all down to to somebody's art gallery because mm -hmm. it was. Yeah, we were gypsying around because we had yeah. about no space, and so we had to borrow space from our neighbors. Yeah. So the, <laughs> anyway, it was sort of a different different experience a long time ago, but uh, yeah, I've I've come back, you know, every time I've written a book. One of my favorite things that Tom ever said to me is I asked him one day. I said, "Why do you always start your book tours here?" And he said, I have to come here because until you tell me what my book's about, I don't know what to say anywhere else, <laughs> which I love. Uh, we've had many interesting conversations, haven't we? Yes, we have. <clears throat> so let's talk about Hero, which is the new book tonight. Um, and, you know, you really are in love with the cat and mouse structure, aren't you? It's just, you know, you've written all kinds of different books, but this one seems to be your favorite story structure. Well... You know, I, th I think uh, the thing about fiction is it's it's got a lot uh, a lot in common with dreams. I think, you know, that is that um, the most common dream that people have is that they are um, being, let's say, either chased or are being about to be attacked in some way. And it's usually adults dream about uh, uh, situations like that with other people. Children dream about that with animals. Don't know why, you know. And, uh, you know, in other words, most of our dreams are a little bit unpleasant, supposedly. But, uh, you know, in a, in a way, they are also kind of rehearsals for a tough situation, 
you know, you're in a bad situation, what do, what do you do? And, you know, your dream self thinks something up and tries it and so on. Um, and in a way, that's that's what fiction sometimes does. It takes the place of that. You know, it's it's the th it's reality, but theoretical reality. And of course, you know, uh, those of us who whose ancestors were smart enough to survive, you know, the the kill off seventy five thousand years ago, uh, are basically pessimists. <laughs> you know, we're not looking for you know a beautiful blue sky, we're looking to see if something in the green part over there is stalking us. You mean danger, danger? Danger, danger. Yeah. Oh. So, you know, I mean, I think in a sense that's that's what, uh, you know, fiction does for us. It puts us in these, these theoretical situations and, you know, uh, and a, a guy that I, I knew in graduate school a hundred million years ago said something about he loves novels because they were their compressed lives and in a way they are you know it's just you get to live somebody else's adventure and um, in a way I guess uh, that particular bad fantasy seems to occur to me over and over again in different situations I'm so certainly glad I'm not in your head at night it must be a scary place <laughs> Well, sometimes there are other times, you know, that are, you know, better dreams. So we'll see. <laughs> I'm waiting <laughs> for you to write one. <laughs> uh, I, think, uh, I don't know. <laughs> so one, one other thing that I've always really loved about Tom and admired is the way that he gives women all kinds of serious skills so they can take on really bad guys and, um, and you know, meet them as equals and defeat them. So Jane Whitefield is, um, what, is your longest, maybe, is, trying to remember if it's your only series, it's certainly the longest running one. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, uh, well, Jane's sort of a sore subject with me right now because Jane is experiencing, uh, it's my fault, um, probably the longest pregnancy in human history <laughs> right now. Worse than an elephant? Yeah, yeah <laughs> she's, you know, I think she's pushing two years, something like that. It is worse than yeah, an so elephant, right? Time. Yeah, so, uh, you know, I'll have to lie about the time that's passed and when I write the next one. So when you say that, does that encourage us to think your next book may be a Jane Wayfield? Uh, it's not. It's not. I'm, I'm sort of, I have these people that nobody's ever seen before who are in a situation that's getting really bad right now, right this minute, and it's, it's if it works then it's going to be the end of this book um, that I'm writing now. And it's, it's all new characters, all new situation, completely different personalities from other, others that I've, I've done. Um, but uh, if it doesn't work, then it's... Then Jay may give birth? <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. We'll see. We'll, you know, we'll have to see. It's, uh, you know, I haven't read over the first draft yet, but it's all just... Let's say it's got more pages than it's supposed to right now. So, uh, you know, sometime so we'll next week, I hope to. You know. Yeah, well, it's always good to remember that when Tom is here talking about this book, he's had a whole year to write a, another book, the one that he isn't sure is actually working. So it's always a bit of a schizo moment for an author to come here and talk about the new book 
because in point of fact, they haven't been thinking about it for, for months, which is one reason I'm here, or Patrick or somebody, so we can kind of keep you on point, right? Right, well, it's, you know, I mean, I see, we like, we like to have good conversations. That's the, mm-hmm. the thing. I, um, uh, I usually kind of remember what I, what I did or what I was trying to do in a book. Um, you know, this whole question of confidence, it's, I think if you think while you're writing a book, uh, you know, other than these in, you know, sort of stupid manic moments that you're, you have this great thing going, you're probably kidding yourself, you know. Uh, usually the parts that you love the most are the ones that really should be cut out. And, uh, you know, it's the, the first draft is all fun and the, the second and third and beyond drafts are our uh, business. They're f- so the first draft is for the writer. The the other drafts are for the <laughs> for the rest of the world. We might have to suffer through it. So how good are you at self-editing? I mean, at some point you have to actually turn this over to your nominal editor. But um, you know, yeah. do you are you one of those people that writes a sort of okay first draft and then goes back and revises heavily, or are you a person who polishes up as you go? So when you're done, it's pretty good. Um, I am a person who writes a book which will be absolutely wonderful and brilliant and faultless. And then I'll hand the first draft to my lovely wife, Jo, who was my writing partner in television and has a PhD in English and has done a lot of teaching and so on. And, and she will break my heart and, and tear, tear my guts out and leave them on the floor. You know, it's really a marvel because you guys are still married and happily married for as long as I've known you. So somehow it's not a destructive process for you two to go through that. Well, no, it's not. I mean, the thing is, if you're both writers, you know, if you both write and you know what this is about and have experienced it and so on, um, the person in the world, any person in the world who will tell you the truth about your, your draft about of your manuscript is absolutely priceless you know mm-hmm. a, to uh you know paraphrase the bible you know she is more precious than rubies <laughs> somebody who will will you know have that awful experience of, of telling you you know this just doesn't work this is boring this part just cross it out you know but i spent three months on that too bad <laughs> So what we're doing here is preempting the question that usually comes at the end about what's your writer's process. So maybe what we should do is really talk about the book at hand and not how you wrote it. Um, So tell us about Justine Poole. I I would say also that it seems to me that you do have a fairly low boredom threshold, which is one reason that instead of writing long sequences about anyone in particular, you're constantly going off and writing either standalones or... Oh, yeah. I mean, I think... You know, it's it's great to be blessed with a short attention span because, you know, then maybe you won't, you know, bore your readers forever, you know, this sort of thing. When I'm when I'm tired of it, I know that uh, the reader has been tired of the scene uh, since two pages back. Um, so, you know, I try to, to move it along to some extent. You know, you'd... Well, it's like, actually, when you, you have your... You meet a friend. You're talking over a beer about something, and the person decides to tell you a story. 
and you've had the experience of, of just sitting there and thinking, you know, I love this person, but... Uh, I need another beer. <laughs> get a, yeah, just kind of, you know, speed it up. <laughs> speed it up. I don't need to know those de details, you know, that many details or whatever. I mean, so, you know, you do try to set a pace for yourself. Well, the truth is that not everybody understands story structure, right? So, well, you know, <laughs> I mean, we all we all tell each other stories. You know, that's, that's true. A, so, um, and we're all the hero of our own stories too, right? Well, well, I don't know. Sometimes uh, I've known people who are the the villain or the victim of their own stories. You know, one okay. or the other. But um, so let's talk uh, about Justine. Justine Poole, because this is the first time and possibly the last time we will ever meet her. Yep. <laughs> yep. That's true. Uh, Justine is um, a young woman who grew up in Los Angeles and was um, in a three-person household with her grandmother and her mother and herself. And, you know, they, uh, it's essentially a... Um, a household only of women, and they are wonderful people. They raise her well. They work terribly hard to get her through college, um, first at Cal State Northridge, um, which is close to where she lives um, in Los Angeles. And uh, while she's growing up, she has to take jobs as she's going through school. As you know, most people do. And she gets a job, a clerical job in a um, security company called Spengler Nash, which is a, an old and very highly respected uh, company that provides mostly services for basically rich people, you know, who can afford it, private security, bodyguards, etc. And Justine, you know, works for a while. For this uh, this man Benjamin Spengler is the is the heir of the person who who started the company, and uh, people like her. People get along with her. She's smart. She works hard. At the point when she graduates from college and has these uh, acceptances to graduate school, she is sort of tempted to keep working there. And she kind of graduates from the clerical part to becoming a bodyguard. And she, you know, because the company trains people and because most of the people who work in that business are either from the military or from uh, police or, you know, some group and have, have uh, retired from there, there's a lot of people who can teach her how to do things and how to act and how to you know, uh, carry out that work. And so what she ends up doing is sort of gradually working into the situation where she's the perfect bodyguard for primarily female clients who, you know, want to travel, for instance, with a, a female bodyguard. You know, she's a bodyguard in the sense that she's the person who guides you through a situation where you know, your fans are going to mob you if they know exactly where you're coming out of the building, and so you take the person through the others and exit to the, from the building that nobody knows about and uh, drives through diff different places and kind of gets in the way if there's anything wrong and 
you know, she has the eyes. She's scanning. She's doing, you know, looking for trouble at all times. And as the book opens, she's, uh, she's on one of these assignments for a, uh, a female comedian who's uh, going to a, a comedy club on Sunset Boulevard to try out new material. It's a surprise. You know, she's going to sort of suddenly be announced and do 15 minutes of new jokes and things and disappear. And so that's it's what, a pop-up stand-up, right. basically? Yeah, it's basically what, you know, it happens a lot in reality. Uh, but she's, you know, she's the person who kind of runs interference as she goes in and does this stuff. And she does uh, kind of avoid a uh, semi-violent incident in there through her ability to spot this stuff developing. And um, she then is on her, she, because this comedian has a, a TV gig, she has to be in makeup at uh, 6 a.m. the next morning, which is the truth, the grim truth of being <laughs> an actress. <laughs> and uh, so she ends up taking her home right after the, the gig. And as, as she is driving back to the office, her boss calls her and says, are you done? Are you done with March of Men right now? And she, you know, and she says, yeah, you know, she has a six o'clock call tomorrow. And uh, he says, well, you know, basically, I can't remember the exact words now, but um, basically, will you act as backup? Because I've been, I've been uh, acting as sort of watching over these important clients, this elderly comedian and his and his wife, who are philanthropists, and are, we're having a meeting at a at a fancy restaurant in Los Angeles, and it appears to Spengler's uh, experienced eye that what's happening is that there's, there's these guys in a car who appear to be stalking them, or kind of waiting for them to, to appear, and uh, he thinks it's going to be a follow-home robbery. So she says, you know, where do you want me? Do you want me there, or do you want me to meet you at, at their house? You know, and he says, you know, go to the house. And so she goes to the house, uh, and to her uh, dismay, what happens is she's not just another person who is going to kind of add to Spengler's actually doing the job. She uh, is there, and these elderly clients show up, and right behind them is these, this follow-home crew. And so Justine is alone. She's the one. <laughs> She's got, uh, and she essentially tries to, to uh, make sure that this couple gets into their house before anything happens and says to these guys, you know, stop, I'm here, blah, blah, blah. And two of them open fire. You know, they actually shoot at her. And she, because she's armed, returns fire, trying to protect these this couple and make sure that they get into the house. And unfortunately kills two of them. She's, you know, uh, she's more effective than she wants to be. But she does get off the call to the police and... By the, then her boss arrives finally, and the police arrive, and then and then this whole story kicks up, off. Yeah, right. Then something yes. So follow describe describe follow home because basically it, it's 
you know, it, it depends. If the, if the gates to the mansion, you know, security gates, they have to open long enough for the couple to drive oh, in, yeah. right? So the breach would come if there's a car directly on their tail that busts right in behind them. Is that a is that a thing in Los Angeles? Yeah. This follow home? Yeah, it has, it's a thing. A lot of places. It's uh, you know what you do is you go to a restaurant, you know, of or uh, hang out and and where you can or a nightclub or whatever. Yeah. yeah, whatever. And you know the the husband is wearing an eighty five thousand dollar Rolex. And the wife is, you know, the uh, when they light the candle on the table, you can see the sparkle on all of her, you know, her jewelry and so on. And uh, you say, okay, gosh, maybe those would be the right ones, you know. Or you see somebody who uh, gets out of a, I don't know, a Lamborghini and does a bad job of parking it and goes into the restaurant or whatever. That's, these are people you want to you want to watch. You want to follow. You know, there are so potential. these are people who are conspicuous consumers right. and um, yeah. basically show-offs, and they're yeah. the ones who then incite you know people to try to remove whatever it is they right they have. Yeah, I mean we've had all kinds of varieties of of this this kind of crime in Los Angeles for you know decades, but it's it's hitting a real peak now there's a lot of this stuff and um yeah the the idea is that you if you come in right after them and there's nobody else around um and the other thing that's you know that's true of of la and other cities particularly in the west but all other other cities is that the richer people are the more land there is between them and their next their neighbors you know this they're a lot it's a lot easier for instance to go into a, follow somebody into a driveway that has 20-foot um, hedges and an iron fence <laughs> uh, than it is to, you know, stop somebody in a much more populated place. And, and you know, you can do a, a robbery. And, you know, people have been killed at it and stuff. So, uh, so those people building on mountains in Paradise Valley are leaving themselves, you know, open. Did you see today that the largest... Un, um, Unimproved parcel in Paradise Valley. I can't remember how many acres is. And it's right next to Paradise Valley Country Club, where I spend a lot of time. Um, but nonetheless, um, you know, I I often wonder. There's there's a home near there where they paid something like three or four million dollars just to drive, but you know, to create a driveway to go up to the top. But, you know, you're right that if you are living in that splendid isolation on top of the mountain, there's nobody really there to help you if somebody breaches your perimeter. Right. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, some places, uh, you know, a lot of people do hire, you know, security 24 hours, seven days a week. But, uh, you know, that's, uh, you know, it's an opportunity to have a crime that you haven't seen in another book. That's basically what it is. And, uh, Anyway, this gets Justine in incredible trouble, and um, at front, which you can sort of tell from the, the title "Hero." Part of the difficulty that she runs into is that being becoming a hero, particularly a hero, um, sort of semi-invented by the local media, is that you that attention is not going to be helpful to you particularly if you've been in a, in a criminal situation 
that's ambiguous, in which you might be the savior of these, these victims, but you might also be a murderer. And the police are not going to be sure until they've done their investigation. And while they're doing their investigation, one of the things that's going to happen is they're going to take your gun. And another thing that's going to happen is that the, uh, well, let's say you, are, you will be one way or another deprived of, of people who would stand with you in a, in a dangerous situation. And so basically what you're saying is that she is the hero, but therefore she becomes a potential victim. Well, yeah, there's, that's one side of being a hero. Right. But there's another side, too, that, you know, you have to worry about, which is that when media, the media make you into a hero, at a certain point, you know, you're the best story they can possibly have. You're the greatest story they can print this week and for the next maybe two days after that. And then after that, gee, what's, what's going to be the best story in town? What's going to be the most exciting story to put on the air? It's that that you're this hero, you know, is uh, maybe not a hero. You know, let's find out more about her. And what, or while we were doing the investigation, here's what what else we found. Or here's a a group of people who um, are basically picketing the police station because you haven't been arrested yet. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of things that happen to, that are more complicated than what we, what we think is going to happen. So, anyway, that's part of the fun. That's the fun of of the, of writing this, <laughs> this kind of story. So when we called it, when I called it a cat and mouse story, there has to be somebody that sent the, there's somebody who sent the the break-in artist, the follow-up artist, whatever. Um, but then when he's feeling challenged because a couple of his people died, he then hires an assassin called Leo. So the, the cat-and-mouse game develops between Justine and Leo. Um, and I love the fact that Justine can hold her own, although maybe she doesn't all the way to the end. We're not going to tell you that, right? But, um, but what I thought was interesting is that the, the bad... You don't give a name other than Mr. Conjure to the, you know, the ultimate villain in this book. Why did you decide to make him that anonymous? Uh, fun. It just... <laughs> okay. You know, it's, I mean, that's what, that's what this is about. We're, you know, we're having fun. And so, you know, having having him be this figure, um, I mean, he's he, he was actually a lot of fun to write. I mean, mm -hmm. at, at one point, I well, no, I'm not going to... I can't tell you the whole story, but... It, uh, you know, he's a he's a good villain. I like him a lot. <laughs> Mr. Conjure, yeah. right. So, right. And then we have Leo, who is accustomed to wiping out everything in his path, running into Justine. So there's a lot going on. Your stories, it seems, you know, this book could really only take place in Los Angeles as far as I can work out. But your book last year, which I absolutely love too, really could only take place in the Midwest the way that you wrote it. So, you know, do you do you come to a location after you've conceived of the story or does the location sometimes drive you to how you're going to what you're going to write or how you're going to structure it? How does it work? 
Uh, they usually start with a character. Okay. The character is the thing that kind of determines uh, what I what I want to do with it. But in the last one that you're talking about, Murder Book. Uh, Great idea, by the way. Wow. Well, thank you. That was, uh, um, you know, I, I kind of started with the the uh, detective, and um, well, I don't know. I I actually ended up having to kind of half invent everything in in Iowa. I mean, not. Uh, I, I'm sorry, Indiana. 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 Yeah. In Indiana, because I didn't want to write. See, the idea, start of the idea, is this gentleman who is a former police officer who is now kind of freelancing, working for government agencies when somebody wants a consultant, because he's an expert on how organized crime groups form. You know, he's seen it, he's worked it, he's you know was the guy in a couple of different police forces who kind of looks after gangs. And uh, he is hired to go into um, the Midwest because there are whole, suddenly a whole lot of um, Chicago criminals, sort of lifetime criminals, who are showing up in these small towns along the rivers in, in uh, Indiana. And the uh, U.S. attorney for that section of or the southern section of Illinois, um, just kind of wants to do have hire somebody to do a uh, a kind of an investigation which will tell her whether it's worth calling in the, the, a huge FBI investigation. That is, you know, you can't suddenly pull all of your FBI people off of you know Homeland Security or whatever it is that they're working on. And say, you know, we've we've got to, you know, get all hands on deck for, you know, this tiny town in, <laughs> in, uh, you know, a neighboring state. Um, so you know that's what he does, and he, of course, you know, guess what? Does he find any, you know, anything bad going on there? If he didn't, it'd be the shortest book in the <laughs> in the history of the world. You know? <laughs> but he uh, <coughs> he does. So anyway, that that was kind of a fun thing. But I, yeah, I mean, these things do have to do with space. I mean, they have to do with parts of the country and what's, you know, what's likely to be plaguing that part of the country today. You know, so you find you have the idea and then you figure out the location. Is that it? Well, it it depends. You know, you never know. It's it always starts with the character. The character. Because you know, I want the, I want to show off that character, that particular guy, because he's sort of the opposite of Justine. He's a you know, he's a kind of hard-bitten, uh, highly experienced law enforcement guy. You know, that's who he is, and he doesn't, uh, you know, he isn't like Justine, who is just smart. <laughs> well, you wouldn't know this, Ben. Isn't it a shame we couldn't hire him to work in the Gilbert Police Department? Because <laughs> we have a whole thing going on here called the Gilbert Goons. Have all of you read about the Gilbert Goons? I'm telling you, um, and what I can hardly believe is the Gilbert Police Department couldn't figure it out for months until the Arizona Republic finally got in there. We we actually have had a brilliant piece of investigative journalism going on in the last, what, three weeks or something, and as a result, they have prompted the 
Gilbert Police Department said, well, we didn't think it was the Gilbert Goons because nobody mentioned them by name. I'm going, seriously, you've got teenagers, you know, attacking. And, of course, because they're teenagers, they're putting their attacks and their crimes on social media, right? So now everybody is crowdsourcing, you know, looking to see they can identify. You're looking interested, Jen. You haven't heard about the Gilbert Goons? No. All right. I'll acquaint you with them. But, I mean, it's really fascinating. And I love Robert Englund, the um, local investigative journalist who's leading this and he's been wanting to write a book for I don't know how long and the universe has just delivered him (laughs) and the person of the Gilbert Goods how could you even beat that for a title right has delivered him an opportunity to write a really kick-ass non-fiction book or possibly make it all into fiction Uh, but I thought about your guy because basically the Gilbert Goods are not dissimilar to these you know except they're what are were called affluent and unsupervised teenagers is what they are. That's the real awful part about it is they're actually teenagers attacking other teenagers for fun and possibly just for putting them on social media. I don't know. I can't understand the teenage mind anymore. I'm way too old for it. I think it's changed. <laughs> I, I tell you the truth, I really do. <laughs> I don't. I, you know, it's, it's a lot of the recent stuff doesn't seem familiar to me as you know, remembering my childhood and. You know, I I didn't grow up in you know Hell's Kitchen or something. I you know, but I you know it was a kind of tough blue collar town. You know, and it and you know people did do things like fight. But I, I, I this doesn't uh, this kind of thing. You know, it's just pure meanness doesn't ring true to me. You know, what I mean, it doesn't it doesn't ring a bell. It isn't like you know. It always seemed as though if somebody was fighting, it was over something or it was about something. Or, you know. But. So in your past, you've written, and I can't remember the title. One of my favorite books you ever wrote was about financial crimes and insurance fraud in a small town. Oh, yeah. Does anybody remember the title of that one? It's one of my... I do, somewhere. Death yes, thank you yes. very much. It is thank you. Death Benefits. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, good. Well, it's still one of my yeah. completely favorite books, but then... Good. And then you have written a couple of extras about your very first um, character. He's a, what we oh, had him yeah, now. Yeah. The, uh, the butcher's boy, yeah, and then we had those, Metzger's yeah. dog, and then I'm trying in in most this most recent one. He's back in action again in the field. Yeah. Well, it's uh, so you do have sort of a second series, right? Oh well, yeah, yeah. It's just it's a series in a weird sort of way because it was there's a. Uh, an average of ten years between each each book, which are you going to make Jane be pregnant that long? Seriously? <laughs> Go figure. You know, <laughs> I don't know. It's a, that's uh, I'm not the father, so <laughs> it's uh, um, you know, it's just one of those things that kind of happens. You've done a certain thing, and I, you know, I wanted to get to the that point because that was something I sort of that Jane had wanted for all these years you know and uh it uh sort of it had to happen kind of right then in her life um and i assumed that i would kind of get right back to it but then a lot of other things occurred to me or were uh you know happened or whatever so what would inspire you to bring back the butcher's boy at you know sort of time lapse 
Um, did you, you know, did you want to write more about him or did you have an idea and he was the right person, the right character no, to wanted, carry it? I wanted to check up. On, every once in a while I kind of get urged, I, I kind of get this urge to check up on him. What's he doing now? Right. You know, that sort of thing. How is he? You know. How's that going to work with the old man? Do you think that, you know, is he a strictly I one-off? I realize something, yeah, it's strictly one-off now. Because um, once somebody else has touched it, uh, it's, it's like a bird. You know, they won't go back to the the thing that, you know, the place that that uh, they used to have a nest or something because somebody's been there or touched it or whatever. I can't, you can't, can't go back and undo the things that were added or changed or whatever. I don't know. Somehow the, it, uh, you know, I had actually written, I don't know, maybe 100 pages of the next. You had. The next one, yeah. But. You know, then I, I saw the the series, which you know I liked. I really enjoyed it. I loved I loved to see those people work. I mean, I just you know I think uh, the three main characters, but you know Jeff Bridges and John Lithgow and and Amy Brenneman, they're just so good. And they're but the other people that were that they brought in were really good too. And I. I you know, I just enjoyed it so much, and I, it they got so far off of of what the book was that I actually was like waiting, kind of eagerly, to find out what's going to happen next. <laughs> you <know>? yeah, right. <laughs> so you, <know. laughs> you get unexpected kinds of pleasure out of this stuff. So that was something I wasn't counting on. Right. So questions from you, the audience. We can't really tell you much more about Hero. We've set it up for you. And I, I do want to say that the opening, I think you orchestrate, you're really good at orchestrating action sequences. And I really did think the whole invasion and what Justine does was really great. Thank you. Very Thank you. moved right along. There was not a boring second. Oh, thanks. You're welcome. And, you know, when we got that money... We didn't have to kill the old couple. No, never mind. <laughs> right. So, questions from any of you? All right. Come on, guys. Yes. I have a question. I, I would just like to tell you that I have never thought of any of your books as being boring. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> one of my all-time favorite authors, yeah. and I cannot tell you how many people I have turned off to your books. Um, well, thank you. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. Well, appreciate that. Hey, Thanks. anyone else? Come on, you two. You're always in the front row. <laughs> John. Uh, Tonawanda, New York, which is about halfway between Buffalo and Niagara Falls on the Niagara River. Well, I mean, it was it was generic. I mean, I kind of made up the place because I you don't want to say, you know, I, I have bad things happen not in not only in these these towns but to them. And if I was writing about somebody's real town, you know, I, that would just really make me uncomfortable. You know, it, I just I thought. Except if it's Los Nope, nope, but thanks. <laughs> That's good. I'm from Indiana. John has no problems writing about that. <laughs> 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 I remember 
you'll notice that he can write about Los Angeles and everything in it with absolute authority and impunity. And Jane, of course, was hanging out around Tonawanda and Buffalo, you know, upstate New York. And you, you, you've written about Chicago more than once. So Chicago is a place that you obviously are comfortable in. So maybe if it's just a big city, you don't have to worry about pinpointing anything. Well, I mean, I sometimes lie about it. You know, I try to make it not like the real thing to some extent. But, you know, there are... There's death benefits. There are Isn't it that, in a small town somewhere? Yeah. yeah. It's been a while since I've read it. But yeah. Right. But it is... It has to be a small town or otherwise the entire, you know, plot can't work, right? Yeah, it's, in, it's in New Hampshire, yeah. That was so, it. New Hampshire. Yeah. Yes, sir. I'm curious. You know, you, you talk about character and, for example, Butcher's Boy is a very mm-hmm. excellent, very sympathetic character in a lot of ways. <laughs> I'm curious how you go from character to story, though. Do you have the story first in the back of your head and then you... Well, you know, I sort of, I sort of, okay, here's, here's another thing that, that writing is like. It's this, um, it's like being a child playing. Do you remember when you're little kids and you would be playing something and you would become like, you would be the, I don't know, the bad guy or the good guy or the whatever, you know, and you would, would play, it's almost like making up a play while you're playing as a child. And in a way, that's what you you suddenly realize you've been doing as an adult writer is that you kind of become each of these characters and you you think about what you would do in that situation if you were that person. Um, and uh, the rest of it comes from there. You know, it's um, each of these people would be presented with a particular kind of adversary or bad situation and sometimes I choose it to to find one that that would be scary more to them even than to us you know I mean it's personalized it's it's something that uh, is is scarier to them you know because they know more about it than you do or I do and um, they have been kind of practicing to to handle that in their lives like you know there's a situation in las vegas in the original the first butcher's boy where you know he comes to pick to get paid after doing some murders and uh is has been basically beaten up by some thugs in an alley just it just as a coincidence like he's a lone man he's it's dark you know let's hit him with a brick you know, and see what he's got on him. Uh, and that's a bad decision for those bad guys, of course. But it's it it marks him. And when he shows up in Las Vegas to, to receive his payment from uh, the, the middleman, everybody in that area who is, is sort of on the bad side of the law, you know, sees that he's shown up, he's there early, and that he's, you know, he's very evident. He's very evident. You know, when you see a man whose face has been all uh, marred from a fight or something, he stands out. You don't want to stand out in that situation, you know. And he, so he realizes when people start to, you know, come to him and say, you know, what are you doing? What are you doing here? That kind of thing. He knows, as we don't know yet, that's... Somebody's trying to, to warn him. He's in mortal danger. You know, don't do this. You know, 
don't disrupt this. Don't cause trouble because trouble comes to all of us if you, you know, that kind of thing. So, I mean, that's where the story, the story comes from that character, you know. Uh, if, it, if it were me, you know, if I had just, you know, bumped into a door or something uh, and I had a, a lot of marks on my face <laughs> and I were in Las Vegas in that same situation, I wouldn't be afraid of anything. I wouldn't be afraid at all because I'm a different person and I don't, you know, have that. But that character is the one that creates the, that situation. And, um, you know, that's, that's part of the fun is you're playing that character. And then the reader gets to do the same thing. I like your comment earlier. You said that basically you grew up down the street from where Jane Whitfield lives. Oh, yeah, That's yeah. Yeah, she lives at the – so. she essentially leaves, lives at the end of the street where my parents lived. But, you know, it's a different, different name for the town, and it's a different street, and it's, you know, a different name. But uh, when I'm writing it, I picture those – three houses in a row, you know, the one that uh, her elderly neighbor uh, inhabits and the one that her grandfather and his friends built and then the, the other one, which is, you know, has changed hands over, over the years so it doesn't figure into the history of her family. But, I mean, there's a lot of things, like the, the furnace that's in the, in the uh, um, basement of... of uh, her house that was decommissioned because it was a coal furnace um, and has been replaced by an oil furnace and then she hides things in the ducts from the old decommissioned furnace well that was that was the house that I we lived in until I was a little kid until I was about I don't know six something like that that was a house that had been built in 1803 it was a, an old place she had had those same stones to to build the basement and the and the uh, bark on the the tree trunks that were the the beams that held up the the floors in the house and stuff. Uh, all that comes from you know that's the furniture that's in your mind, <laughs> your own mind. You know, but it, it seemed to fit who she would who she would be, and it's you know. I mean, the the thing that was unusual about it is that in um, you know, in the East, there are very few places that are um, so completely re easily uh, related to the, the Native Americans who lived there, you know. Because the, when the Revolutionary War ended, um, there were still something like uh, maybe 10 to 15,000 Iroquois um, out in the woods, and the woods were thick. The woods were, you know, primal forest. And uh, a European person couldn't get across New York State, basically, without a guide, because, I mean, it was so it was so thickly forested, and, and you know, most of, of your travel was going to be done by water. Um, and... Anyway, when the when when the the <laughs> Treaty of Fort Stanwix was being uh, was ending the the war with the with the Iroquois, um, there were still all these guys out in the field, fully armed, <laughs> who had basically never done anything in their lives except hunt and and make war, 
and do diplomacy, you know, which was, uh, so uh, there wasn't a real good way to, to like push them off their land or, or uh, you know, I mean, you have to realize that the, of all of the people that fought in, in the Revolutionary War, there were only 120,000 colonials who fought, right? So a pretty high proportion <laughs> of, of very scary uh, people were still out there, and so they had to be nice to them in the, in the uh, um, treaty. You know, they were not pushed anywhere. They were just, you know, granted six reservations in that part of New York State and lived there. And they're still there. So we had a great night when Tom told it, but you possibly can remember it, but Tom had written about the Iroquois in the Jane Whitefield series, and then he got a helpful a helpful fan. Want to remind us about that one? Because that was great. Oh, you're talking about... Uh, oh, yeah. The actual Iroquois. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've had several times when I've run into situations, you know, people would come up to me and say... Um, you know, I'm a Seneca, and I'm I'm back for New Year's for the, you know, their New Year's is a different time of year than uh, the general population New Year's, and um, you know, I would be you know, talk to them, and it was really nice. They were, they were really kind and polite and stuff, but then I finally got this letter one time. Uh, I don't know, maybe, geez, must be almost ten years now. But uh, this gentleman who was an attorney who uh, lives in Canada and the um, uh, Bransford Reserve of, of, you know, it's all the Iroquois nations and basically they, they uh, are, you know, part of Canada. They're Canadian citizens and so on. But uh, there's a part of the, the original treaty was that... Uh, the border between the United States and Canada makes no difference. They can go across it any time they want without any restriction of any sort. And, you know, so there's always been a, a, a continuing relationship between the Amer American Iroquois and the Canadian Iroquois and, um, you know, all six nations. So, uh, well, he lives on that side. And his, he, his practice over the years has been on both sides of the, of the border because, you know, he would essentially represent their interests. And he, he wrote to me and he said, uh, you know, I've, I've been reading these Jane Whitefield books for about 20 years and I've been meaning to, to, to write to you and, and just sort of let you know that um, there are a couple of things that I don't think you really understand well, you know, and, and he proceeded to tell me what he thought those were in a five-page single-space letter. Because he's a lawyer, right? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it was, uh, you know, it was wonderful stuff. It was stuff I could immediately use. I mean, it was just, you could take it from his letter, and if you could put it in a book, if you, if you could somehow just take the letter and go, boom, you know, that's page 96, and, you know. Anyway, it was it was really good stuff. It was, it was uh, things having to do with... Um, well, there are some cultures where people say grace, you know, say thanks, give thanks at the beginning of their meal, and some cultures where people give thanks at the end of the meal, okay? And the, the Senecas are a group that say thanks at the end of the meal. And, you know, and he 
proceeded to tell me what that amounted to and so on. And, you know, he said that uh, this thing I've always loved that I invented, which was say that Jane uh, collects um, her, finger, her fingernail clippings to, uh, to uh, give to the, to the little people along the, um, <laughs> along the, the Genesee River, uh, which is, you know, where most of, it was sort of the heart of Seneca country. It was uh, right roughly where Rochester is now. And, um, you know, he said, well, you know, she probably would do that, but she wouldn't, you know, get the tobacco that you're, you're talking about here. She would get this, this other tobacco, which people actually grow for religious purposes. And, um, you know, they would, instead of, she would, instead of like, you know, burning it or something like that, people do like if they're going to go drive on a long, long trip somewhere, it might be dangerous, they might sprinkle a little bit of it on their tires before they leave and, you know, say a little prayer for their, you know, and I don't know, there's just a lot of little things like that that, that bring you from, you know, this is a made-up book by the whitest of white people <laughs> to something that's real. It's like real people. That's how people think. That's what, you know, and you go, oh, my God, you know. So I wrote, I wrote him this effusive letter, and I said, look, this is great stuff. Thank you so much. And if you ever, you know, find anything that... Uh, you know, that you see in a book of mine that's not authentic or isn't right, please just write to me and, you know, please let me know. And uh, very soon I open the mail and there's uh, another five-page <laughs> single-space letter with more stuff like that, you know, just wonderful things. And it actually made me set aside a manuscript that I was working on and write a book about Jane because all of the stuff was So what's his inspired. address? Can we get him to write to you so that we'll actually have Jane give birth? <laughs> Aha! Well, there may be a way in here. You know, well, there's a scene in a, in, a, in a book that he recommended to me that was, was uh, written by a friend of his who helped him um, actually negotiate a, a treaty at one point between the uh, Canadian government and the... Uh, the Mohawks, okay, and this man was a, a professor at the University of Buffalo for a while and everything, <clears throat> and his name was John Mohawk. Like surprise, and uh, he—it's it, about a day when a friend of his his wife gave birth, and they lived in a, a rural area in a essentially a wooded area. And he arrives and and pulls his car over at the bottom of the uh, of this hill where, where they live, and he he climbs the hill as that day, and he's bringing presents and stuff for the for the child and for you know, and uh, and he begins to sing. He sings really loudly this this um, traditional song in in Seneca, you know, and and sort of announces his presence by singing this kind of hymn as he's going up the up the hill to bring them the the presents and greet this baby in his first day of life, you know. And I thought, oh my God, you know, this is this is another another thing. Another I, I, I kinda wanted to I mean if if 
you follow this, and I do write it. I do. <laughs> I haven't written it, but you know that scene may make an appearance in a book of mine. But you know, because it's at some point, you know, Jane is going to have to have this baby, or she's going to she's going to get mistaken for a Volkswagen. All right. Well, I'm torn because while your new idea sounds really great, I kind of hope it doesn't work. You're going to have to have Jane come and do something. Well, I thank you. Did anybody have a final question, or would you like to move to getting books signed? Hand? No? All right. Well, thank you very much. Let's give Tom a round of applause. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.